Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to find freedom from the shame and pressure of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode with Lynn Wilder and Joel Grote as they and their guests share personal stories and wisdom from the Bible that just might surprise you. We invite you to experience a grace that heals. Welcome to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. I'm Lynn Wilder. And I'm Joel Grote, and we are delighted you can join us. We are in a series with Sandra Tanner. Sandra and Gerald are probably best known for Utah Lighthouse Ministry, uh, for the Salt Lake City Messenger, and for all sorts of historical work related to the Mormon Church. That as we learned in in, in last week's podcast episode, which we want to encourage you to go here because this is kind of a continuing series. This will be episode four. But we learned last week they actually started mimeographing material to share just with family and friends historical material back in 1959. Mm-hmm. So that gives you uh, just kind of an idea how long they have been producing material. So that's kind of where we're going to jump in today. Sandra, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad you're with us. And we're going to let you just kind of continue with your story with how you and Gerald, because as you were saying last week, you didn't really set off to start out in ministry. Um, Gerald was a machinist. I'm not sure what you were doing to help hold family and home and everything together. Um, But it kind of evolved. And so I'm really excited to hear how it went from mimeographing a few sheets for family members to whole books and material that actually really rocked the Mormon world with the information you guys were beginning to put out. Okay, well, uh, I guess jumping back uh, when we were still in California and actually still believing the Book of Mormon, uh, in 59, I had talked to my bishop about uh, problems I had with the church and he had called in a guy to talk with me to help me find answers and the guy was just repeating the same old stuff the Mormons give us answers which weren't satisfactory and um, I had talked to him about uh, some problems with the first vision that I didn't see there was enough historical evidence put out by the church to show that there was any mention of the event at the time or shortly after it I mean it seemed like the first vision was written about much later and Joseph Smith didn't print anything about this supposed first vision until um, printed it in uh, 1842s of an event yes. that was supposed to happen in 1820. And um, so my Bishop had offered to send my questions to the Mormon church historian who was apostle Joseph Fielding Smith. And okay. he, had, he had sent back a letter castigating me for uh, having a lack of faith and uh, looking at <laughs> material I shouldn't be looking at. And yeah, Wait, was, that's the response you got from the church historian? Yeah. From Joseph Fielding Smith, who right. would again, later go on to be president. Church material. You're yeah. looking at church sources. Right. Yeah. And so uh, it all just got brushed aside. Well, that put in motion a number of events. Uh, we put out, mimeographed a little piece of paper about uh, the problems of the first vision and mailed it out to different Mormon people and church leaders. 
that there wasn't early support for Joseph's story, that it seemed to be a later event told of a very late uh, earlier event. Well, this gets complicated, but anyways, we ended <laughs> up meeting with Apostle Grand Richards and uh, because he told, uh, he had written me that he had the diary of his great grandpa who had heard Joseph tell the story of the first vision on the spot and it claimed that he had, he had claimed that it was the father and the son that had appeared to him. Well, wow, we questioned okay. him on this reference and by now we had moved to Salt Lake. So uh, he said we could come up to his office and see the reference. So we went up there and what he showed us was just a small excerpt, uh, but it didn't have a date on when the excerpt was written that told this first vision account. It was supposedly one written in uh, Joseph's lifetime and it didn't sound right. Uh, so Gerald asked to see the original because it sounded like Joseph was being referred to in the past tense. And oh, yeah. the Grand okay. Richards took us to the church historian's office to see a microfilm of the original. And Legrand turned it over to the page where the quote was at. And Gerald said, well, it sounds in the past tense, like, like the guy writing the journal wrote it uh, way after the event with Joseph Smith, like it wouldn't have been in Joseph's lifetime. Uh, and Legrand got real upset that we were questioning his uh, word. Mm -hmm. uh, and he took the reel off of the microfilm reader so this is on, you know, one of those microfilm things. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, he tells the woman, you know, here, put this away. You're not to show it to them if they come back. They're just troublemakers. Well, it took us several tries at the library to finally get to see the film, but we did finally get to it. And just like we suspected, it was written in 1880s out here in Utah. So it didn't do mm. anything to prove the first vision story. Yeah. That it was the way it was being told in Joseph's lifetime. Well, this set us on a course of investigating the first vision. And so in our earliest mimeograph efforts, we put together a little sheet on the first vision showing that there were problems and contradictions in the early telling of this event and who appears changes, whether it's angels or Jesus or God and Jesus. So this is the start. We didn't realize at the time. This is the start of our chapter on the first vision on a big book we did in 1964 called Mormonism, Shadow or Reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, because now the microfilm thing comes in, because originally you were modern microfilm, right? right. We set up as a business in the early 60s uh, as just a microfilm company. We bought a microfilm camera and reader, uh, and we found a system where you could have the microfilms printed off onto a, a photographic material to run on our offset press that we had bought uh, which that's another crazy story how we ended up with the press but anyways so our our publishing of different things is a gradual uh, adding of one thing after another of going from just mimeographing to photographing documents to getting a little printing press offset press and which by the way we knew nothing about and it came with an instruction manual we're going to be printers, you know? <laughs> my heart <laughs> that's i mean i ran an offset printing press in college um a chi 15 and those are not easy machines to get everything right wow yeah yeah well we we messed up a lot and when you use paper masters you can have them uh follow up in the machine papers come printing paper can follow up in the machine yeah so uh, we learned the hard way how to run all that 
uh, and so it was just gradually growing on the stuff that we were producing so that when I tell my family or friends, hey, Joseph Smith said this, and they say, oh, I don't believe you. Well, here's a photocopy of it. And mm -hmm. so we started reproducing early Mormon newspapers and documents so that people could see the actual photo when we right. give the quotes. Yeah. Uh, so were people coming to you with questions because you had left the church or were you approaching people? Did you have a boldness to, to open this subject with Mormons? <laughs> well, of course, with my friends and family, I got an immediate list of people I want to talk to. Uh, but they right. just kept shutting us down because we were two young kids that were stupid and hadn't gone to yeah. college and uh, didn't know Zip. And so why would we believe you? Look at all the educated Mormons there are. And they all still believe. So uh, why should I trust what you're saying? That's why yeah. we had to keep getting photocopies because you don't have to take my word. These right. are from books and your own libraries here in the state of Utah. You can go to any university in Utah and find these sources. Hmm. And nowadays you can find it all on the internet, but we didn't have that luxury back then. You had right. to go to one of these universities to see these things. Mm -hmm. And then how much of this material was also like, uh, like in this case, this one diary that was on microfilm, which makes it even more complicated because then you have to have a microfilm reader and a way yeah. to print it off. Um, so at any point, did you have like people start supplying you with historical material that they wanted you to like look into or verify or use? Yes. Uh, later as we got better known, but early on, it was just talking with family and friends. And then as we started putting together these little mimeographed pamphlets, uh, on different topics, like we had one on polygamy, one on Adam God doctrine, one on blood atonement, one on first vision, plural marriage. And, and so they were just small little 10, 20 page little pamphlets that we had mimeographed off. And we put them in one of the used bookstores here in town uh, for like 25 cents, 50 cents uh, for these little pamphlets we wrote, compiled, compiling all the different uh, Mormon sources that would talk to the issue to show there was a problem. Right. Well, that started bringing people to our door. Now we're just living, renting a little house up on the avenues and uh, people start coming to the door wanting to know about our research and wanting a photocopy or whatever. Mm. So uh, this was, it was just growing gradually. Into <laughs> just word of mouth as people heard about it. As people heard about us. And so finally in, uh, uh, must've been 64, um, Gerald said to me, this is getting uh, too much work for me to do while I'm working as a machinist as well. And I don't I mean, by now we have three kids. And so we got a busy household. Yeah. And Gerald says, I can't do both. We've got to decide, are we going to try to go with uh, doing research on Mormonism or do I quit doing the research and just be a dad and work at the machine shop? So we had to pray about that. And um, finally, Gerald felt that uh, God had given him the assurance that this was our next move. So uh, we decided to uh, that we were going to do reprints of early Mormon documents like the Times and Seasons, early Mormon newspaper, and the yeah. Evening and Morning Star and the Elder's Journal. These are all early Mormon magazines in Joseph Smith's day. Mm -hmm. And 
since we knew that everyone had to go to some library to see these, we thought, well, here's a way we could support ourselves to go full time uh, would be to do reprints of early Mormon documents that everyone would like to have to be able to read at home, whether they're writing pro or con on Mormonism, they all use these same early sources. Right. So that's what we did. We used our printing press to put out these uh, inexpensive uh, reprints of these different papers. Yep. Instead of little plastic binding, had a plastic cover sheet on it in yeah. color. We've got we've got some originals in our all. library. Yes. <laughs> here's a here's a quirky thing from God, right? Joel made the comment a little while ago that um, about microfiche, not everybody may be knowing how to use that, but as a Mormon, I did because we did genealogy, and that was how all of that was done. Oh, so that's those sources really were accessible to us if we just went to the library and looked at them, right? Right. And so, yes, everyone that did genealogy uh, knew about those different kind of film systems that did have these old documents on them. Uh, most people didn't go to the library to use those kinds of equipment. So uh, this made it easy for someone to have the documents at home and not have to have a reader, a microfilm reader sitting right. in the room. Mm -hmm. you know, just look at a paper copy. And uh, so that's when we decided we were going to set up modern microfilm company. We would microfilm these old books and documents and then print them. Uh, and there would be a market both for Mormons and non-Mormons. And uh, by the way, as a funny side, uh, we had to borrow money to set all this stuff up. And we borrowed it from uh, Zion's First National Bank, which was the Mormon <laughs> church bank at the time. I mean, literally, their apostles were the board of directors. So there's a certain irony uh, in this. Yes. But <laughs> we worried about asking them for a loan because, you know, if they asked too many questions and they found out we were putting all this stuff out to persuade people not to believe Mormonism, that the vice president of the bank that met with us, he probably wouldn't have thought this was such a great idea. But when we told him it was to reproduce all these early Mormon documents for researchers, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, yes, we'll support that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and it was, I mean, and it was used. Yeah. And it was used very broadly. I yes. mean, there were. Yes. So then that obviously works. You're able to sell enough of these to continue and expand. And... Uh, in 64, we came out with our big Mormonist and Shadow or Reality book uh, that we have continued to update uh, well, for the next 20 years up until. 87 uh, was the last update we had of the book, but it's monumental, but it all stems from our research when we were leaving Mormonism, when we couldn't figure out what to believe and trying to present evidence to our families and friends. I mean, that's the core, that's the basis of the book yeah. is for it's, to tell them what's wrong. It's your own elongated CES letter, right? Yes, right. Yeah. Well, I think the CES letter borrows a lot from our research, but, uh, in a, a more adaptable form that people aren't as intimidated as being handed a 600 page tightly yeah. type book. So uh, when Gerald gave up his job, we, in 64, we bought a house that I'm still living in, a uh, big house that, where we could do printing and minister, well, we didn't call it ministry, research um, and raise our three kids. And so we had enough room for our family and for all this business stuff to be in it as well. So our parlor, this old Victorian house with a front room and a parlor and sliding doors between them. 
So we just slid the door shut. And so we had a front room devoid of controversial material that we could bring family into. And then we had yeah. another room that had all our uh, literature that was for sale laid out there. Now our family knew what was in the other room. It just made it easier to have them visit that we had a room totally devoid of all controversial mm, material. Right. And so uh, we just had this, I don't know, 15 by 16 feet room that we had for the bookstore. And we bought a bunch of bookcases and just had all our reprints of Mormon documents that we did sitting around and our newsletters that we had started to do. So that was the basis of the beginning of modern microfilm. But as the years went by, uh, we were always going broke. I mean, you go back through our papers. I was just looking at them the other day and I saw all these different thousand dollar loans we took out from friends and family <laughs> and to keep afloat because we couldn't pay the paper bill or whatever. So we juggled finances a lot, um, but God kept us afloat. So then, uh, what would it have been? In the early 80s, uh, a couple of our friends in Chicago, or in the Illinois area, uh, had been sending us gifts to help us with our printing bills. And then this one minister, Wesley Walders, uh, <laughs> had been, even though he was just on a pastor's salary, he had been sending us a monthly little donation. And he said to us one day, he says, you guys are in this rut of just going broke all the time and taking out loans and stuff. If you would go nonprofit, you would be able to get more support. Uh, when you list yourself as a business, people don't think in terms of something they would give a gift to. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so if you set up as nonprofit, so people know that you're looking for donations to help stay afloat, <laughs> you would have more support. So that's what we did. We set up as a nonprofit organization, and it did make a difference because people realized, oh, uh, they, are, they aren't just making money off of their reprints to enough to stay alive on. So yeah, we'll support you as a nonprofit. And, and it's really helped keep us going with that switch. Not yeah. that we, we never bought a Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not have gold-plated faucets in my bathrooms. <laughs> but it did pay the bills. Yeah. So how did, I, I'm curious, how did you meet Wes Walters? Because anybody who knows like early Mormon research, he was also somebody who was doing his own sets of research and stuff on the side um, and made some incredible finds himself. Yeah. So yeah, how, did you, that... how did you connect with Wes? Because he was a pastor in Marissa, Illinois. Right. He connected with us. Okay. Uh, we were just this little, this is when we lived up on the avenues and we're just running with a little mimeograph machine. Um, and I don't remember now how he heard about us but uh because this would have been in the 62 maybe we still believe okay. mormon when we met wes when he came to our house he was out here on some youth camping trip or something from illinois and had heard about us he had written an article for christianity today on mormonism because okay. he, had passed, he had pastored at one time up in the New York area, not too far from Palmyra, where it all started. Mm. And then uh, I think he had, okay. he had a pastorate in Ohio for a while, maybe. And then he ended up in Marissa, Illinois, which is not that far from uh, Nauvoo, Carthage, the endings of Joseph Smith's life. So 
his pastoring had taken him to different areas where he had been aware of the Mormons and done a little study on them. Okay. So Christianity Today wanted something on Mormonism and asked him to do a little article. So then he heard about us somehow and stopped in to talk to us uh, because he had heard that we had become Christians but still believed the Book of Mormon. So he thought that was a real curious thing. So he stopped in and after we had visited for uh, half a day, when he got ready to leave, he says, well, I think you guys really are Christians. I just don't understand why you're still hanging on to the Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the journey continues. But uh, so Wes had got launched into that interest in Mormonism from different places. He had lived close to Mormon communities. So he had been studying up on the early life of Joseph Smith at the, before he started Mormonism, uh, like we had been doing. So this brought us in contact with Wes. And um, then we kind of were working on similar areas, shared a lot of research on when we get started into all that first vision stuff. Wes got looking into all the New York area stuff of Joseph Smith. And Wes made a fantastic find in uh, uh, archives for New York, where he had found the paper, some of the paperwork on Joseph Smith's 1826 hearing, trial, whatever you want to call it, uh, on him being a money digger, which was a yeah. major find. And that turned everyone's research into more magic money digging stuff. And then Wes did a study on uh, revivals in New York in the 1820 uh, and adjoining years uh, to see if the revival records matched Joseph Smith's telling when he says, uh, there was a revival in the neighborhood and everyone was fighting over who got the converts and yes. uh, all that stuff. So Wes wondered, well, what is the documentation on this kind of a revival? Uh, and he, Joseph's brother had even named the minister. So Wes started finding all these different clues about places to look. And uh, so he had ended up in this uh, Norwich County jail that had all the archives for the area in the basement getting musty and wet. And he had found the 1826 trial papers. So this confirmed his uh, involvement in magic and money digging. Yeah, and glass looking and- Glass yeah. looking, all this necromancy and things that Joseph was involved in before he started the Mormon church. So we ended up uh, then hooking up with Mike Marquardt, uh, a young kid that was just leaving Mormonism who got into research as well. And Mike now is, uh, very well known in Mormon historical circles for all the research he's been doing yes. on early Mormonism. And uh, along the way, uh, Brent Metcalf, as a returned Mormon missionary who came in to set us straight, uh, ended up finally leaving the church. And uh, he now is well known for all the research he's doing. And Dan Vogel, that does all kind of research on Mormonism in the early years, came to see us and found out about Wes and went and stayed and met with Wes. Oh, uh, Mark Wart did as well. So it just so in the 60s, there was kind of this group of mm -hmm. interested people all doing research on similar topics. And as different ones published some of their research, this threw the Mormon church into a frantic position of evidently there's more to learn about Joseph's early history than we realized. Yeah. And they sent all their historians back to New York to comb the archives. They didn't want to be surprised again. Uh, we got to see what all is out there. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, led to <clears throat> the um, uh, people like Leonard Arrington, the Mormon church historian, 
uh, all starting their own investigations. And yes. so this leads into this ongoing Cold War uh, between non-Mormon historians and Mormon historians trying to sort through the early documents to see how the story should actually be told. Thank and, God. Yes. Yes, because... <laughs> And, and don't you even see today God like just laying on the heart of some pastor out in the middle of nowhere, right? Yes. Mormonism and the Mormon people. And then you can see the patterns of God all working together. Yeah. And we are out of time, time again. time, I know. We could do this forever. And, and I had no idea that you guys were influential in like people like Mark Ward. Dan and Brent. Yeah, and, and because and these are all people who, who, if you've been involved in more related research, you know their names. They've now published books. They've published multiple volumes of stuff on research. So yeah, it is so cool how God used you guys to influence really kind of the, well, they were kind of your generation though. I was gonna say next yeah. generation, but they were, well, they were younger. They were coming off their missions and, um, yeah. but they became a lot of the catalyst that also like you said, to launch this whole, wow, we had better learn about Mormon history, the church itself. Right. And that's, I guess, where we want to pick up next week. God has sustained this woman and this ministry for 60 years for his purposes. So in the next episode, we want to ask Sandra about what kind of changes she has seen over the years in the Mormon church. We would be thrilled just to have you tell us what experiences you've seen over 60 years. Grace and peace, my friends. Until next time, Sandra and Joel. So long. Thanks again, Sandra. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Unveiling Grace podcast. You can find show notes and leave us your comments and questions at unveilinggracepodcast.com. We would love to hear how the podcast has helped you. We are so grateful for you, our listeners, and the donations that keep us on the air. To say thank you, we are offering a free gift with a donation of any amount. Just go to unveilinggracepodcast.com and click on the free gift button to get yours. Thanks for joining us on the Unveiling Grace podcast, where you can experience a grace that heals.